0: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Adrian Brown, who's an associate professor of English at the University of Chicago. We're going to be talking about Adrian's recent book, The Black Skyscraper, Architecture and the Perception of Race, which was released in 2017 by John Hopkins. Described as a lucid, engaging look at how race was read in and through the skyscraper by Diane Harris. Uh, Adrian's book was the winner of the MSA first book prize, the Mod- uh, modern studies association for this year. First of all, just to kind of give listeners an insight, uh, what were the origins of this project? Um, and how was it kind of developed since your first kind of inkling that this could become a, a book project?
1: Sure. Um, so there are a couple of different origin stories that I have for this. uh, <laughs> uh that accrue different intensity at different moments. Um, So one one origin moment for this is actually um, back when I was an undergrad, I went to the University of Maryland, which is a pretty big state school um, and they had an architecture school there. And um, architecture was never in the cards for me. I have terrible depth perception. um, I just knew it was not going to be a practical possibility for me, but I was really interested in it. And my best friend, Um, from uh, undergraduate uh, was an architecture major. So I spent a lot of time in the building and spent a lot of time with architecture students, really fascinated by their process and how they made things, but also got, was really interested in architectural history. So I took a couple of courses there and I ended up writing a senior thesis on um, John Cheever and uh, who's a mid century American, uh, mostly known for short story writing, Wrote a lot about the suburbs. So I wrote a lot about the suburbs and his construction of whiteness. Um, because I guess the other origin story for this project is my own interest in the ways that my own suburban upbringing didn't look anything like those kind of cookie cutter suburban stories. So, um, I grew up in a pretty diverse suburban metropolitan area. So, um, So the senior thesis kind of brought together my interest in space, architecture, and race studies to think about the production of whiteness in mid-century. So when I applied to graduate school, I always knew that I wanted to do some project that had something to do with race and architecture. And uh, I ended up going to Princeton, which has a a really fantastic um, architecture school, but also a lot of people in the humanities who are thinking about architecture and race in interesting ways. So when I got there, I was really nourished by um, the resources and the people who were there. Um, So when I started to do my um, comprehensive exams, I had two lists. One main list was on American literature, mostly 20th century, and I had another list on urban planning, architectural theory, um, uh, urbanization. Um, And the origin of this particular project and um, in, in particular really started out of that list where I started to notice that in the in the American um, architectural histories that I was reading, you know, uh, the skyscraper is such a looming figure. You can't really tell the story of American architecture without uh, kind of paying tribute to the skyscraper and all the platitudes that have been assigned it um, in terms of its role as the first um uh, native quote unquote uh, architectural product that the nation could tell. And then reading my literature list and noticing just how few of the novels in the period where the art where the skyscraper is really kind of amassing its clout um, are even interested in this in the skyscraper. Um, I could it, it appeared in these little places like in places I expected it to loom quite large it would get maybe a line of description our sentence acknowledging it, but the novelists that I were, was particularly interested or in reading in that moment were so disinterested in the skyscraper. Uh, so that really became a question, like a genuine research question, like what is this disconnect about in these kind of two ways of thinking about telling the story of America? Uh, why are novelists so disinterested in the skyscraper when it seems to be kind of accruing um, all of this prestige not only in architectural writing, but, you know, in kind of ge- the general American public sphere. So the dissertation I originally wanted to write, uh, that was going to be like the first part. That was chapter one. It was going to be a much larger uh, dissertation about American <coughs> architecture and literary form. Uh, I had this crazy structure that started with the skyscraper. It went to the Jim Crow South. Then it was in the mid-century suburbs. Somehow it also went to Las Vegas and was going to read like Tom Wolfe and the new journalists um, next to the kind of the interest in Las Las Vegas in the 70s and 80s by architects, and then it had a part about Hawaii. It was insane. Uh, <laughs> so I started writing the um, skyscraper bit, and at this point, the project was much more about. Um, Form was much more about architectural form and novelistic form. Like why was the novel not interested in containing and writing about the skyscraper and making some argument about, well, maybe the novel isn't interested in mimetically representing the skyscraper, but it's learning from skyscraper architecture lessons about formal construction, about control, about restraint, about order. Uh, So that was, I started writing that bit of it, um, as the first chapter of this crazy, insanely long um, dissertation, and kind of never left that first chapter. So I kind of realized a few months in along with my advisors that this chapter was now probably going to be the project. So I kind of settled in with that. Um, so the dissertation that I ended up writing um, again reflected this much more formalistic interest in um, novel form and skyscraper form. It had, the chapter about race in it, but it wasn't primarily organized around questions of race. Um, So that was that. I graduated. uh, I got this job at Chicago. Um, I had some time to really sit with my materials and kind of think about what the book was going to look like in relationship to the dissertation. And trying to figure that out, um, I just spent time rereading the sources that I had found and reading some new things and kind of realized something I had missed when I was writing the dissertation, which was that in all the very different kinds of works that I was reading, that there always seemed to be this tension between um, describing the skyscraper and this question of uh, how one could be read as a racial, racial subject or seen as a racial subject. So I started to notice this interesting triangulation between questions of race, skyscraper architecture and writing But I just didn't kind of put the dots together when I was doing the project as a dissertation. Um, And uh, I kind of realized that this was the real story of the project. So um, that's what I ended up doing is really revising that earlier, much more kind of formalist project to think more about this question of race um, as it was kind of becoming more and more apparent to me that it was kind of all over the literature, all over the archives that I was um, looking at. Uh, So that's the kind of long (laughs) version of the origin story.
0: You mentioned um, sources there and your book kind of, I guess, is in the best tradition of American studies in the sense that it's like truly interdisciplinary and you engage and grapple with lots of really nice and different material. Um, Were there particular archives that you really found beneficial in shaping the project Um, or was, was it really a case of just the kind of Accumulation of all these different sources writing the kind of arguments that you're putting forward.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when I first started the project, it was kind of a backwards research project in the fact that the original claim was that the that the novel couldn't really represent the skyscraper, wasn't that interested in it, um, in the kind of early moment that I defy, which is like the 1880s through the 1930s, uh, or to up to 1931. So <laughs> the first year or two at this project was just like proving that negative claim. Uh, So having to read a lot of novels in order to support the claim that the skyscraper was not in fact in them or of uh, very much interest to it. Um, So that was a trickier research question than I had anticipated uh, (laughs) about how to prove something isn't there. Um, So uh, the other kind of secret trick of this project um, that I often tell people is that when I was doing the original, like first dissertation research for this, it was that kind of glorious moment when Google Books had just launched, uh, but it hadn't yet put on the kind of massive copyright restrictions and search restrictions that would eventually come. So there, I was kind of doing the initial research for this in this moment where you could really kind of search anything uh, without, you know, being stopped by Google or limited by what you could actually see. Um, so I don't know that this project would have worked in the same way if I had started the research earlier or after that moment. So there's a like kind of happy accident there. And just in terms of like doing the kind of just straight up very boring word searches that I needed to do to just find where people were talking about the skyscraper. Um and that was a lot of the earlier version of this project because it was a much more, um, much more focused on the literary in particular. So it was really just finding who was writing about the skyscraper. I began thinking about kind of more canonical novels that everyone knows or may have heard of, like the, some of the things I write about in the book, like uh, The Great Gatsby. Uh, the original dissertation had a whole chapter about John Dos Passos. Um, who had this really interesting relationship to American architecture and the skyscraper. Um, But then I started to realize that, okay, I think my hunch is right about the more canonical novels. They aren't interested in the skyscraper, but there's this whole world of kind of pulp writing, romance writing, science fiction, where the skyscraper is everywhere. So the next part of the project was really trying to find and mine all of that material, Um, And that required a very different kind of archive. I was was looking at a lot of periodicals at that moment, periodical resources, um, and just really kind of like digging through uh, book reviews, digging through old paperbacks just to figure out who was talking about the skyscraper and where. And then at the same time, I was also kind of pursuing the architectural story, which is also of interest to me as which is about how architects are writing about um, uh, skyscrapers and how in particular uh, where language of race, racial ideology, um, miscegenation, evolution the things that I really kind of bear down on in the book uh, what's appearing in the writing of architects at the around the turn of the century so that really took me to um, that was a pretty much more that was a much more straightforward research um, an archival project where I um, was really just looking at you know, architectural record, um, uh, the kind of Western architectural journals, uh, reading a lot of early monographs. I read a lot of Montgomery Schuyler, uh, a lot of Henry Van Brunt, just really trying to, um, you know, immerse myself in, in their writerly, a lot of Sullivan, you know, just really immerse myself in their writerly world and just understand their arguments that they were putting together. Um, you know, there were also like a trillion dead ends, um, I did a course, um, at the New York. Oh gosh, I'm going to blank on the name of the institution, but somewhere I did like a six week course on how to do architectural, you know, how to research deeds and, um, you know, city records, and to really get into this, into the kind of the deep history of, uh, researching individual buildings. I did a little bit less of that than I thought I was going to do, but, um, At the beginning, I was like, I don't know where this project is going to take me. I had this particularly pressing question I wanted to answer, which was about how labor in the skyscraper was organized racially, particularly in relation to like janitorial classes, Um, like where were black people in skyscrapers? If they were laboring in skyscrapers, like what was where were they in the buildings? Um, You know, I did. I followed this through a little bit in terms of elevator labor Uh, But I I never could quite fully answer that question. Um, uh, So I I let that question go to to a certain extent just because I could never figure it out. Um, So, yeah, I kind of went all over the place. And then, you know, I did a lot of archival stuff in terms of the authors I was writing about, a lot of them lesser known authors. Um, uh, So, for instance, for uh, Mary Borden, who I write about in relationship to a white metropolitan feeling in the skyscraper. I went and looked at some of her early drafts um, of the novel I write about. So that's pretty more straightforward kind of literary history archives. Um, but it really was just like whenever I thought I knew something, <laughs> realizing like, I didn't know anything about it and, and having to kind of like seat myself in that history. So it was a real mix of primary, secondary uh, archives and research methods, a lot of database searching, but also a lot of, uh, you know, archives, hard archives, real papers um, that took me to, you know, I stayed pretty close to Chicago and New York um, in the book, uh, but also in the archives that I ended up uh, using for the project. Um, and they ended up being, you know, very rich. Uh, but yeah, that's 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 the archival story for the most part of the project. Good
0: stuff. Um, so we'll get into kind of um, the book itself. Now, uh, the introduction, um, there was one, one phrase quite early on in the introduction, um, which we can can do a lot with, but you state, like most things and theories emerging from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, blackness in particular, and racial difference more broadly, shaped the skyscrapers' material and aesthetic development. Um, and you, you kind of gestured towards that um, in what you've just said, um, but I was wondering if you could give a few more examples of exactly what you mean um, by you know, this idea of of blackness most specifically and then racial difference more broadly shaping the skyscraper material and and aesthetic development.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And, you know, there were in the various versions that I produced of this book, um, (laughs) I had like, you know, 30 pages at some point about labor unions and the racial makeup of steel unions. You know, a lot of that, that more material history, I really compressed for this book just because I really wanted it to focus on, this question of perception. Um, But in some ways, this book could have been a very different book. Um, That sentence actually does truncate a lot. So, um, you know, in that sense, I'm trying to basically acknowledge the ways um, that when you're looking at the story of the skyscraper, we can see the way that race in particular, uh, race more broadly, but blackness in particular, shaped its very production. Um, I talk most at length in the book about the ways that questions of Um, evolution and miscegenation that pepper the writings of skyscraper architects and those more broadly interested in the in the evolution or the shape of American architecture um, shape the ways that they thought about how skyscraper design should look um, and and you know debates about skyscraper facade design and how questions of um, whether the skyscraper should reflect the heterogeneous population, the distinctively heterogeneous population of the U.S. as as architects were categorizing it, or whether it should look differently. Um, but, you know, in the course of this research, I found all these other ways that race was a part of how the skyscraper was produced. Um, again, to go back to this question of the, of uh, steel, um, I spent a lot of time reading histories of, um, of steel manufacturing in the U.S. in the 19th century, particularly uh, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about Homestead, which is one of the kind of biggest sites of manufacturing um, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. uh, Homestead Steel fed so much of the skyscrapers, so many of the skyscrapers that went up in New York and Chicago. And uh, thinking about the ways that um, the managers of Homestead and other kind of steel sites Um, purposefully uh, uh, incubated or produced or maintained uh, groups of laborers that were racially heterogeneous so that they wouldn't unionize, right? Like, trying to produce um, hostility amongst the laborers Um, and steel unionizes quite late. It doesn't unionize until 1937 which is partly why steel is so cheap Um, and Partly why skyscrapers could be built in the numbers and in the in the in the size that they were, uh, because of the exploitation of steel laborers and it, and just learning the story of how conscious, how consciously um, steel managers um, incubated division through uh, through racial schisms was a really um, was a story that I found pretty astounding. Uh, I also spent a lot of time thinking about. Skyscraper construction. There's a whole other chapter that I wrote about that. That's I think going to appear somewhere else. Um, but thinking about the ways that journalists were obsessed with describing um, skyscraper construction sites, it was a real point of fascination for the public um, because skyscrapers were going up so quickly, um, and you'd have all there are these all these newspaper reports of people gathering around skyscraper construction sites. You know, kind of taking in the spectacle. Um, and there was a lot of interest in who were these men doing this very dangerous work. Um, and I spent a lot of time with these articles and um, kind of a persistent trope within those articles was um, a tri- uh, an attempt to kind of produce a racial schematization of who was working, who was doing the construction, um, that the kind of heroic beam walker, um, which is kind of the most visible and the most uh, easily glorifiable figure of skyscraper construction. Um, the one the kind of, you know, the, if you think about that like classic poster of the men sitting on the beams, eating their lunch high up above the skyscraper, right. That like this kind of constant visual fascination with their, with those men and their labor um, that uh, people were interested in trying to claim the beam walker superiority, his fitness, um, for that work in racialized terms. Um, so you find all of these ways of trying to contain um, and essentially dismiss and make invisible the massive number of Native American workers that worked on skyscraper sites. Uh, that uh, there's this kind of interesting origin story about uh, bridge construction in Canada in the 19th century, where these bridge workers kind of noticed these Native Americans. Uh, Kind of seem, you know, very easily traipsing across these narrow beams and being able to like have this um, poetic, po- poetic and lyrical way of moving their body that made them very fit for working bridges, wor- working bridge construction and skyscraper construction. I mean, that story is completely, <laughs> it's also a racial fantasy about, you know, the likeness of Native American bodies. But, um, you know, uh, this question of Native American labor, Black labor, Italian labor on the skyscraper. Willa Cather wrote this really interesting story about skyscraper construction, where she uh, basically describes the plight of the Italian immigrants who worked in the bottom of the skyscraper, which was the most dangerous part to work in because it was, for obvious reasons in some ways, because, you know, uh, one, it was a place where if something fell, (laughs) you were the most in danger of getting hit. And two, because... Digging skyscraper foundations was really dangerous work. You could get the bends. You were going so deep down that it was really grueling, hard, um, difficult work. I mean, all labor on the skyscraper was difficult, but it was definitely where the most injuries happened. Um, and so Cather really trying to describe the plight of these skyscraper workers and really thinking about a racialized term. So um, So to go back to your original question, that sense indexes a lot of that material history of the labor and the unions and the way that race really um, made possible skyscraper construction as we know it, but also the ways that race informed these more kind of philosophical and aesthetic conversation about what the skyscrapers
0: should look Mm. like. Um, So you kind of, the way that you talk about race, you you start off, um, or at least kind of the focus of some of the earlier chapter is you this idea of whiteness and you have this um this phrase kind of the visual fate of whiteness in relation to architecture um so could you say a little bit more about exactly what that phrase means and um, within the context of the book um, and then you use a couple of of writers to kind of develop that idea
1: yeah i definitely could talk about that so um i was interested in that question of the visual the you know the visuality of whiteness is, a great interest to me in this book because I think when we're talking about, you know, fear, the kind of, uh, um, well, I think, let me restart that. (laughs) I think when people are describing what it means to think about, um, white precarity in the turn of the turn of the 20th century, early 19th, uh, late 19th and early 20th century, um, so much of the language that, um, I think gets used is about fears about blood, um, fears that, uh, Whites were going to be uh, were going to die out because they weren't reproducing enough. That, uh, that the racial others coming to the U.S. were reproducing much more, um, or that uh, that miscegenation or racial mixture, the mixing of the race, the sexual mixing of the races, was going to also dilute whiteness. So, so much I think of the ways that people talk about uh, the fear of white genocide at the turn of the century is related to these fears of. Of, of blood and reproduction. But what I wanted to really recover in this book was that, yes, that is definitely true and that's there, but there's also this fear that you just can't actually see white people anymore. <laughs> that it's not just a fear of kind of like biological destruction, that the white bloodline was going to be wiped out, uh, which you certainly get. And people like Lothrop, who I write about and other kind of prominent race, science, race scientists, but also just straight up racist writing at the turn of the century. But there was this extra this kind of accompanying that fear of kind of biological decimation was also this fear that in uh, changing cities, uh, in cities where the scale was increasing, where you had more density, where sight lines were uh, multiplying at such great rates that you couldn't actually just you couldn't actually see or determine who was white in relationship to all these racial others who had migrated and immigrated to American urban centers. Um, So uh, part of one of my real, um, one of my primary arguments in the book that I really wanted to pretty forcefully argue for was to recover the story that, about uh, the visual precarity of whiteness as several authors um, in this period that I'm writing about obsessed upon in a great deal of their writing. So um, I write about this in the book, mostly through kind of two forms of writing. Um, The first is through science fiction stories and weird science. Uh, And so there were these, uh, it's probably, it should come as no surprise, I think, that the skyscraper was really a point of fascination for sci-fi writers. And in some ways it was like sci-fi come to life the city was evolving almost more quickly than the the sci-fi imagination could um, to make it fantastic. So these like incredible structures going up everywhere uh, became a point of, uh, you find uh, the skyscrapers uh, pretty well represented in pulp and science fiction stories. Um, So I write about two stories in particular where the skyscrapers imagined to either go back in time to be kind of magically... uh, transported to to a kind of pre-colonial New York. And in another story, these white metropolitans fall asleep for a thousand years, or I can't remember how many years, for a long time on the top of the skyscraper, and they wake up in a New York that's been taken over by a black horde. So in both of these stories they are very different in in some ways, but they're both about, um, I read them as, uh, ways for uh, white writers in the period in which they are written, which is uh, late nineteenth early 20th century, to imagine what are the conditions in which whiteness remains possible um, in the world of the skyscraper, so these kind of fantastic frontier vi- vistas become ways of staging this question of um, how does whiteness remain visible. Um, so, I track it that way through um, these kind of outlandish, crazy stories. And then I also track it in kind of in some ways the polar opposite genre, which is through the realism of William Dean Howells and Henry James, these writers who were really opposed to the skyscraper because they were uh, invested in writing um, literature that was about people and intimacy and social relations and kind of saw the skyscrapers throwing a wrench in their whole narrative project. But what I try to recover in the book is the way that both Howells and James were variously interested in the skyscraper because of the ways it was putting pressure on um, the ability to see and recognize white subjects. So why for William Dean Howells becomes a kind of a a bit of a problem uh, where he's trying to imagine, He kind of has this, he writes this editorial. He was the editor for Harper's Weekly for a good number of years. And in this editorial, he writes, um, he describes a friend who's really upset about the skyscraper. He thinks they're ugly and thinks that they're destroying the city, um, that they're the most kind of atrocious things he's ever seen. And at the end, um, Hal's asks his friend a question about um, people. He's like, well, what about the people of New York? And his friend pretty seamlessly links the problems of the skyscraper to this problem of how do you perceive the people of New York, um, and this argument emerges about the ways that the skyscraper kind of makes it difficult to recognize a kind of uh, the the real Americans, the Anglo Americans. Um, and Henry James kind of has a different take on this. James is less concerned about um, uh, he was he he was more concerned actually about. Um, the ways that the American city was making it hard to tell stories about people. And for James, he was really interested in in racial details as, as the site of narrative itself. Like how you tell stories about people is by reading people and looking at them and knowing them and approaching them and having something to say about them. And for him, the skyscraper becomes this obstacle um, to having access to people. And for him, race in some ways stands in for that capacity to tell a story about a person. So, um, he's, his take on race is actually really, and the skyscraper was quite complicated, but in some ways it boils down to, um, his need to hold on to race as a legible, visible detail, um, through which, um, white, white metropolitans can kind of consolidate and understand themselves, um, as distinct from racial others. Um, so I tell, I tell I, that's where visuality is really important to me is tracing the different ways that these very different writers are imagining the ways that whiteness can still become visible, legible, readable within the city even as the city is um, not only just changing in terms of the scale and the materiality of the city, right, putting pressure on how one sees, but also in this period where you have um, uh, not only, you know, um, vast amounts of African Americans migrating from the South to the North, but you have uh, a great amount of immigration from Europe, uh, where people are coming, and this question of who is white, right, who is ethnic, those those determinations are really slippery at the turn of the century, um, and the difference between an, an ethnic reading and a racial reading are, are very different for different people in that period. So this question of you know who is who is white and how do we read them become complicated not only by the kind of great number of people coming to the city and great number of quote unquote racial different racial types emerging in the city, but also the kind of uh, the way that the built environment is also um, making the fantasy that one can distinguish between these different types of people by reading their bodies um, more and more, seem more and more like a fantasy to a certain extent.
0: Um, So those anxieties about race and kind of, you know, ideas about fluidity of race and the modern American city is something that you kind of dig into more and talking about uh, Nella Larson's passing and then also this idea of um, miscegenation miscegenation as an architectural de- uh, discourse which was an, an aspect of your book which I just found so interesting And like personally I had no real idea before of, of that kind of the use of, of miscegenation or ideas about miscegenation in architecture um, so um, if you could kind of explain exactly how that term or that idea is, is used architecturally and then how you kind of use that in relation to uh, literature
1: yeah Um, So, uh, yeah, the idea for this chapter really um, struck me when I was reading um, Kindergarten Chats by Louis Sullivan. And Sullivan is um, often touted as one of the fathers of the skyscraper in America, um, as kind of one of the kind of boldest interpreters of its style. He wrote a lot about the skyscraper. He had very strong ideas about what it should look like and should be. And Kindergarten Chats is a a compilation of, of a number of essays he wrote um, about skyscraper form and how it should work. And there's one of these, in one of these essays, he talks about, he describes the skyscraper. Um, uh, he talks about skyscraper form and he says that the skyscraper should avoid kind of being a miscegenated in its form. Um, and he uses this, he explicitly uses this term miscegenation. And that's what at first really very strongly struck me because miscegenation has a very specific Um, history. And when Sullivan is using the term miscegenation in the late late 19th and early 20th century, it is very much tethered to this very specific history, Um, which is the term was invented in the 1860s. So it was still a pretty new word when Sullivan is wielding it. Um, It was first coined in 1863 as part of a political hoax designed uh, to cast New York Republicans as these kind of fervent um, advocates for interracial marriage um, uh, as a way to kind of tank their, tank their political platform. Uh, basically, it's a kind of repeated what we'd see, what we see in the Jim Crow South and this, uh, this accusi- accusation of people being kind of Negro lovers. So um, this hoax is put forward. These mailings are sent out. These pamphlets are made um, with the name of the New York Republican uh, Party on them, insisting that this is their platform. And in the platform, they, what they describe is the platform is a platform of miscegenation. So this is a completely made-up term at the time, which, you know, is meant to sound pseudoscientific, um, combining two Latin words, mis- misere, which is to mix, and genus and kind. Um, so it's a completely fabricated term um, to, to describe interracial sex. So before that moment, interracial sex uh, was called by a number of things, most commonly amalgamation, but amalgamation meant a number of things. It also meant, you know, it had a scientific terminology. It meant kind of general uh, mixing of things together. But miscegenation was the kind of first dedicated terminology that was specifically and only in, <laughs> uh, brought into being to describe interracial sex. Um, and it still has a connotation, you know, like <laughs> very much what it still means. But so the term kind of, even though it kind of came out of this hoax, it very much lingered as a useful term for describing this. And to see it in Sullivan's writing, <laughs> it really, I almost gasped uh, because it because it's such a specific term. He, had, he uses other terms throughout the text, amalgamation, hybridization, mongrelization, which also kind of come out of the same rhetorical trajectory. But miscegenation is so specific and has this, such a distinct um, uh, linguistic uh, trajectory that it, it really stands out as a kind of uh, smoking gun there. Um, And so from there, I really kind of started to trace where this language of miscegenation um, in particular, but also these other kind of broader terms for uh, describing and defining uh, uh, the dangers of interracial mixture that were so on the minds of Americans in the late 19th and, and early 20th century, Um, And kind of seeing how they shape so much of the architectural discourse of this period um, when it comes to this crisis that was happening in the turn of the century about what was American architecture supposed to look like? You know, was it supposed to follow European precedent um, or should Americans produce some sort of organic native style? And the skyscraper really exasperates these conversations, both because it's brand new and it's, you know, um, it's fascinating, Uh, because of its novelty, but also uh, because of the way it was built, because it had the steel skeleton that could take on just about any facade design you could imagine. So it's kind of this liberating structure that made, that raised the question about what its skin should look like versus other forms of architecture where the structure kind of determined what the facade needed to look like. Uh, With this, with the steel skeleton, you now have this kind of huge aesthetic problem of how do you then clad this thing that can look any kind of way you want it to look. Um, so this is where you see these kind of fervent debates about American architecture more broadly taking place through this kind of proxy debate of what, sky, what the skyscraper should actually look like. And it's in those debates that you see this language of miscegenation, amalgamation, hybridization, and mongrelization really uh, uh, getting a lot of use on the one hand, the other language that you really see that uh, becomes key to how people are making their arguments, the various kinds of arguments they were making for how the skyscraper should look is the language of evolution. Um, so, you know, most commonly you would see an argument made by um, architects that skyscraper facade design should evolve slowly, that it should kind of evolve out of the European precedents for building um, that have developed slowly over centuries Um, and that the Americans shouldn't move too quickly to disrupt that evolutionary aesthetic process. So they should import these European designs and slowly modify them um, for the kind of building use and the climate and the culture in which they were emerging um, in America. Uh, So the combination of that evolutionary language, the evolutionary argument for how design should build slowly off of European precedent, on top of this, the language of miscegenation and amalgamation um, as kind of warnings, further warnings about how Americans shouldn't move too quickly um, to build, uh, to make the skyscrapers kind of reflect the heterogeneous population that was so distinctly thought of as being distinctly American at the time. But those arguments very much parallel um, the arguments being made by racist scientists in this period, um, cautioning against interracial uh Interracial sex and against mixed race persons um, as kind of lesser people, um, as kind of degenerating the white race, um, that it's a kind of bastardization of evolution, a negative evolution. The, African, the Africans and Asians and other uh, kind of non Europeans evolved at a slower pace than Europeans did. Um, So you basically, you can kind of see parallels to all of these different kind of race science arguments about racial evolution more broadly, but also about um, the dangers of miscegenation in particular, being echoed and reified in the language that architects themselves were using to make sense and make arguments about how the aesthetic shape of the skyscraper, what the, what the aesthetics of the skyscraper should be. Um, So I spent a lot of time kind of closely trying to track those two discourses as they are running parallel and then kind of collide into one another at various moments um, in these debates about skyscraper uh, form.
0: In these kind of core chapters, which, which, Are really at the the heart of the the project. Um, Kind of the the backdrop to this is is not just the kind of almost frenetic skyscraper building that's that's happening, particularly during these first decades of the 20th century, but you also have this moment of kind of black cultural and political activism, the Harlem Renaissance. Um, And Chapter Four, uh, which takes you know the the black skyscraper takes the name of of the book itself. Um, You really get to the heart of these ideas about kind of uh, African American literature, the skyscraper kind of ideas about modernity, um, in particular through the work of Wallace Thurman, Aaron Douglas, and um, Du Bois. Um, how exactly do these these authors understand or interpret the skyscraper and its place within um kind of both a specific form of black modernity, um, and also kind of in relation to other forms of African American cultural political production happening at this specific moment?
1: Yeah, so we're um a lot of the book is about this white metropolitan panic in response to the skyscraper, this kind of fear by white metropolitans that the skyscraper was making it harder to read racial bodies, making it harder for whiteness to be legible um, and discernible in urban centers. Um, This fear about miscegenation and how buildings were going to look in the wake of a kind of mixed up America. Um, You have black writers at the same kind of, coming to the same conclusion or, not, or seeing the same things, but coming to different conclusions. So kind of also acknowledging the fact that the skyscraper was putting pr- pressure on the racial sign on the way that people could read race from the body, but really kind of um, embracing that uh, discombobulation and disorientation and seeing it and seeing within it a real possibility uh, for um uh, for scrambling the racial signs so completely that race can no longer be meaningfully index anything. Um, you know, they weren't right, unfortunately about that, but you see in these various writers, uh, black writers in particular, um, taking some of that, the kind of chaos of their urban, of, of this, of the skyscraper city, uh, and seeing it as a possibility, or experimenting with its possibilities for making um, for um, making race so hard to describe, so hard to see that it becomes a kind of useless um, describer. So um, I primarily think about this through um, two writers in 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 this chapter. The first is W. B. Du Bois, um, and Du Bois is most is definitely not most known as a writer of fiction, Um, probably most known for his activism, for one of the founders of the NAACP, uh, for his kind of, what I take as a kind of a treatise of racial perception, um, Souls of Black Folk, which uh, uh, he published in the uh, early 1900s. But at the same time, Du Bois was constantly writing fiction. Um, He always wrote fiction, he kind of returned to fiction at several points along his very, very, very long um, life and career, um, and so um, in some of his writing from this particular period, um, from the early 20th century, Sky, uh, Du Bois uh, writes at least two that we know of, two stories that feature the skyscraper. Um, so super interested to kind of find these and um, and think of, and to kind of take up this question of what are what are they doing there? Because in some ways you would expect Du Bois. Uh, given, um, his leftism and his eventual, you know, his, he was a kind of a general socialist until he became, uh, kind of officially a communist much, much later in his career, but always very left in terms of, uh, how he thought about class, um, that in some ways he adopts what was the kind of standard leftist line on the skyscrapers to really understand them as symbols of kind of capitalist accumulation, uh, and as these kind of negative spaces that, um exemplified all that was wrong with American capitalism. So he does kind of treat the skyscraper that way and some of his non nonfiction. But in the fiction, he's doing something very different with the skyscraper. So I write about two stories. Um the first is a story what do I write about first? Uh, I write about the Princess Steel first. Um Princess Steel is a story that he never published in his lifetime. Um I uh Alongside with my colleague, Britt Russert at UMass Amherst, we both kind of came across this story and realized it needed to be published. Um, so we've sent, it's now published. So you, <laughs> one can read it now, but Du Bois never actually published it. We don't really know why. But um, the story is a really, it's a really kind of wild, wild story about um, two white uh, graduates of the University of Chicago Sociology School who are married, and they go to New York on their honeymoon, and they see an ad in the newspaper for a sociological experiment, and they want to be a part of it. So they show up um, to the skyscraper, they go to this, the top floor of the skyscraper, and they arrive at this office, and they find this black man. And they're both very confused about where they are and who this person is. And it turns out he is the one who is running the sociological experiment, and he produces this machine called the megascope um, that allows people to see what he describes as the great near um, and draws from, in real life, some of Du Bois's theories about sociology and how it works and what kind of vision a sociologist should have, that a sociologist should be able to see very far, should be able to kind of measure great patterns and in, in sociological behavior, but also should never lose sight of the present and of real people. So Du Bois is very critical of contemporary sociology because he didn't think it had the correct form of sight. Um, it couldn't correctly toggle between the abstract and the, and the everyday. So in this story, we kind of see Du Bois inventing the technology that would grant one that site. And the skyscraper proves pretty critical to that site. Um, so he hooks these two uh, uh, young people, <laughs> these two youths into um, this machine and he turns it on and we see through the perspective of the man and he sees this whole kind of like colonial um, adventure of two knights feuding over the steel hair of an African queen um, and fighting for uh, African princess um, and fighting each other to the death to try to have access to her hair. Um, and the hair eventually kind of leads this way um, into Pittsburgh. You can see it. Du Bois connecting African colonialism to the production of steel in Pittsburgh to the skyscraper in which they're all standing at the time. Um, So this man has kind of fantastic vision. Most of the story is spent describing this kind of feudal spite. Um, And then he kind of takes off his apparatus and looks to his wife and his wife has seen nothing. She's kind of just like twiddling her thumb and staring at the, at the street below and they leave, and the last lines that this black sociologist tell him is that the machine wasn't tuned um, enough for her. Um, so it's a pretty interesting story. And for me, it's it's indicative of a couple of things. A, for Du Bois, this interest in vertical space as a way of kind of rethinking racial sight and racial vision. And Du Bois does this in actually a number of stories where he kind of thinks about how one sees the world and um and tries to describe the way that percept, uh, interventions and in perception can perhaps produce interventions in racial consciousness and thought. Um, so in some ways, this is kind of Du Bois' most explicit experiment in in that conversation, or in, that, in making that argument. But also it fails, which is really interesting to me. And I think it fails, or it fails to reach both of them, both of the people who are part of that experiment, because I think for Du Bois, he kind of realizes um, the kind of takeaway is that, you know, you can, you can kind of produce, you can kind of change the scale of race all you want. But if some, some people will never be able to kind of see the way you want them to see uh, like this woman just isn't ready to receive this vision. Um, and no matter what you do to kind of perception or say, you know, this question of race remains so powerful uh, that no kind of evidence to the contrary, about race as meaningfulness or about, you know, race indexing inherent or natural qualities that you can kind of disrupt that empirical argument as much as you want. But this remainder of race remains so powerful Um, and, you know, kind of see Du Bois making a similar argument in a second skyscraper story he wrote called um, uh, The Comet. A similarly kind of strange and apocalyptic in some ways. A comet hits New York and the only survivors are this white woman and this black man. And uh, the end of the story kind of brings them to the top of a skyscraper uh, where they're about to kind of like throw up their hands and, and turn to each other as the kind of the the uh, the people who are about to produce a new human race, um, a, a miscegenated human race together when all of a sudden It turns out uh, only Manhattan had been designated. So people start coming in from the boroughs. They're about to lynch this black man because he's so close to this white woman at the top of the skyscraper. Uh, The woman convinces them not to lynch him. And then the black man's wife runs up carrying their dead infant. And they kind of have this very private moment of grief and loss, but also um, joy in seeing each other again. At the top of this skyscraper, after the kind of white world turns away from them, so it's just another moment where Du Bois being really interested in what the skyscraper makes possible. It becomes this kind of triumphant space for imagining this new future, this kind of new uh, multiracial future that's going to solve all the problems of the past. Now that it's been eradicated, that fails, but at the end, you still find a use value where. Du Bois kind of puts this black family, though it has been decimated to a certain extent, they've lost a child. Du Bois also lost a son um, not that long before the story. Um, But they're kind of still reunited and holding strong at the top of the skyscraper. So the story ends with this image of this black family atop the skyscraper, a kind of really powerful um, image. So, um, yeah, I read Du Bois as really... um, Trying to think about the disorientation of the skyscraper, I'm using it to produce different kinds of narrative about how race and visuality and uh, might reshape um, race relations, but also kind of being very realistic about the limits of how much a certain kind of disruption to uh, visual perception perceptual habits can actually uh, do work in terms of producing. Um, any sense of racial e- equality.
0: So those ideas bring us into your, your last chapter, uh, Feeling White in a Darkening City, um, which first of all manages to do pretty much the possible in, in offering a new salient take on the Great Gatsby. Uh, so that's, <laughs> congratulations for that. Um, but also this kind of uh, returning to ideas about, about white anxiety in the skyscraper um, and this move from kind of um, perception uh, which has been the focus for, for a lot of the earliest kind of chapters. And then this idea of of race as a uh, lived experience or the matter of lived experience. Um, so how do you, how do you address that either through uh, great Gatsby or through some of the other texts that you engage with in this chapter?
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, I think your summary of this is exactly right. So much of the book is about, you know, perception, uh, sensory perception, visual perception, how does one read and see and make legible race, when read from the exterior uh, sites of the physical body. And this chapter is really taking up a different question, a related question about, you know, this question of how does one feel oneself to be a racialized subject? And this question of feeling was actually so important to race science in this period. I think we, because of the image of race science in the 19th and early 20th century, so much about like, you know, uh, measuring skulls and, um, uh, you know, uh, talking about lip size and nose size. Uh, um, I think we forget that race science was as much as certain strains of race science were interested in um, connecting exterior characteristics to um, allegedly inherent racial traits. That there was that also part of race science was this question about feeling and how does how do we know what are the kind of uh, um, the emotional. Uh, uh, characteristics of different races. Um, and so this chapter really tries to think about the ways that, um, it's the last chapter because it moves the most forward in time. Um, thinking mostly about the 1920s and the jazz age, this moment that is so associated, um, with kind of, um, um, depletion, about fears about white depletion in this jazz age, at the same time that um, there were so, those fears about white depletion were so entwined with questions of, of, of Black primitivism, that Blacks were joyful, um, that they could weather the storms of modernity because they didn't care about them, whereas whites were kind of killing, killing themselves through the civilization that they allegedly had produced. So, it's kind of picking up this story in the 20s where this question of white virality and white endurance, um, no longer, I'm, I'm less talking now about visual endurance, but now talking about like the ability to survive um, and to keep oneself alive become, you know, such a fascination for jazz age writers in this period. Um, and so, this chapter really thinks about this in two ways. It thinks about this through, as you mentioned, the Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald is kind of the kind of poster child for the question of, uh, for this question of um, uh, white, the ongoingness of white virility in the jazz age, um, I write about this lesser known writer, Mary Borden, and then I write about Le Cabusier's um, travelogue, uh, American travelogue, when, when the cathedrals were white, and thinking about the ways that the three of them are thinking about these questions of white capacity to weather um, the problems of modernity in relationship to black, primitivist tropes of joy and happiness, um, and the ways that the skyscraper mediates that in all kinds of ways. So, um, in terms of maybe I'll talk a little bit about Gatsby and Le Cabousier together. Um, so I'll start with Le Cabousier. Um, so when Le Cabousier comes to the U.S., um, and you know, his trip to the U.S. has been very well documented. It was another place where it's like, <laughs> what is there left to say about this? Um, Uh, But when he comes to New York, he's kind of famously both kind of enraptured by the skyscraper, but also kind of appalled by them. And this is such a common response. Uh, We see it with Henry James. We see it through so many of the white metropolitans who feature in this book. There's this kind of attraction to the skyscraper, but also a great fear of it. Um, And for someone like Caboussier, that attraction and fear is related to both the sense of wonder and might uh, and power that the skyscraper radiated, but also this sense of uh that it was dwarfing people right that it was kind of making uh, making people into the kind of this new enslaved class scurrying around at the at the base of the skyscraper um so this kind of imagery of of whites being um uh made less sovereign in the wake of these towering structures that are taking away the humanity of the city, um, these kind of broader arguments about humanism become very racialized in this period um, through the figures that I write about, but just more generally by people describing whites as a kind of new enslaved class who are unable to who have thrown themselves so much into the work of civilization and building the skyscraper that there's nothing left. Right. Um, So Mary Borden, who's the least known of these writers probably makes the kind of, broadest, (laughs) most explicit claims about this, where she talks about whites being the new slaves while blacks have learned to be wary of the skyscraper and kind of uh, keep themselves away from it in these kind of cabaret basement spaces of Harlem. Um, So you see it time and time again in these kind of white metropolitan narratives of exciting jazz age New York, this attempt to yoke both the kind of fear and terror, but also awe, of the skyscraper to the kind of similar sensations that white metropolitans had in Harlem, um, in uh, in relation to African Americans. This kind of fear at the same time, but also this great attraction and awe and desire for and desire to be, while also this kind of uh, attempt to kind of paint them as disgusting and subhuman at the same time um, as you know, less than human or too human, too excitable, so that you see this kind of cluster of emotional responses yoked, the kind of same responses yoked to the skyscraper and to African Americans. And Mary Bourne is probably the most explicit about connecting those two threads by um, describing this white skyscraper architect as being inspired to design skyscrapers through his time in Harlem. So this idea that whites are really kind of, in some ways, she creates this really uh <laughs> unbelievable portrait of the city where you have the skyscraper that's influenced by uh the energy of Harlem um kind of taking over the uh the city vertically and then subterraneanly blacks are associated with downtown uh and uptown basement cabaret so whites are kind of surrounded by blackness in the form of the skyscrapers vertically and then Blackness associated with the underground space, so she kind of creates this image of whites who are who can't get out of this uh, sphere of blackness that that the city now produces. Um, and Gatsby is really interesting because in some ways, Gatsby uh, is not a novel about skyscrapers. It only appears one time uh, when Nick and Gatsby are driving into the city. It's this is pretty famous city scene where they're driving in from uh, Long Island, and they describe this kind of halcyon view of the skyline as um, sugar lumps. Um, I'm forgetting the exact term, but it's something in sugar lumps. And um, it's this kind of space of purity, um, this magical city. Uh, But when they get actually, when they cross over into the city itself, that image of the kind of white, beautiful, pure city um, really collapses. And so in my reading of Gatsby, I kind of draw on this kind of long established claim now about Gatsby being viewed in that novel as a, a figure of miscegenation, that because he changes his name from Gats to Gatsby, that he's really this passing figure who's trying to pass as a kind of Anglo-white metropolitan uh, where, you know, he would not necessarily have been considered, you know, that kind of white person uh, when he was just J. Gats, um, G-A-T-Z. So he kind of anglicizes his name. So I build from this kind of, law this reading of Gatsby as a passer, and think about the ways that Gatsby's passing becomes visible to someone like Nick once they get into the center of the city. Um, and he's kind of associated not only with skyscrapers, but with all these kind of quote unquote unsavory um, ethnic characters who kind of kind of suddenly emerge to surround um, Gatsby in a way that make his his non-whiteness become apparent to Nick for the first time. And it's the kind of beginning of the end for Gatsby to a certain extent. Like as long as he's doing his business from the phone far away from the city, you know, he can kind of maintain his facade of whiteness. But when he kind of moves into the city, the same thing that happens to the skyscraper for Nick, when they see the kind of beautiful facade of the white city, once they enter into the city, all of that crumbles and they start to see um, blacks, black people. There's this famous city scene where they see um, a a limousine with a white chauffeur and three three African-Americans in the back of the car being driven around, the sense of kind of complete upheaval of the pretty white city the same thing happens to Gatsby once he moves into the city he becomes associated with the kind of false white facade of the skyscraper that crumbles when you get too close um and I do some other things with with that reading in the book about kind of the way that visual attention becomes racialized um, in the great Gatsby but it's really trying to pull out from this novel that seems so disinterested in the skyscraper because it only really it gets explicit reference in one line, but there's all these ways that the skyscraper produces this scene of racialization uh, that is so key to my understanding of what that novel is about, which is about like the production and maintenance of whiteness um, in this period when it in its when it's imagined to be so under threat and under attack.
0: Um, I just want to finish on a, on a final kind of broad, broader question, uh, both looking forward in terms of maybe what your next project or is going to be, and, and also um, the kind of the state of the field at the moment. Um, so first of all you know I'm sure our listeners would be really interested to hear about what kind of what you're working on now, um, if you've got a new project that you're deep in the archives on at the moment um, and also where you see your work in relation to kind of a broader body of scholarship that's emerging. Um, I know that you're part of the Race and Modern Architecture project and uh, there's other scholars who are kind of responding to people like Bill Gleason, um, Diane Harris, Mabel Wilson, um, and kind of a new generation of, of scholarship on architecture, literature, race, emerging. Um, so I was wondering where you see this project fitting into that body of work.
1: I'll start with that question. Um, when I started this project, um, both when I started in like the undergrad, uh, very abstract version of this project, but also when I was working on it as a dissertation, it was a much lonelier field in which to work. Um, and uh, you know, I was really adamant at the beginning of this project about um, about the ways that architecture and architectural history had been so um, what's the word I want to use um, uninterested in questions of race. Um, even at you know, in this moment, I, I you know, I was just reading so much work where you know, the questions of race and gender are so interesting and theoretically sophisticated in the fields of architecture architectural theory and architectural history really, you know, from the seventies on forward. And then just kind of like, you know, looking for that same kind of engagement with questions of race and really being really disappointed about, um, about what already existed in terms of architectural history and theory. Um, The kind of lovely thing of, since the time I've started writing this project since then and now, you know, that's really changed quite a bit um, that there is this kind of growing field of people working around and insisting upon um, the urgency of questions of race and architecture in all kinds of ways. So I was lucky enough uh, when I was at Princeton to have um, an advisor who was kind of wanted. Uh, one official advisor who was doing this work in a really kind of tangible way. And then another kind of person whose work I deeply admire. So the first is Bill Gleason, who wrote this book called Sights and Scene, um, who uh, was one of several of people uh, coming out of English and American studies to kind of take up this question of race and architecture uh, when it wasn't really kind of coming out of architecture and architectural programs and architectural writing itself. Um, so I, uh, uh, this project would not have existed without him. But I, also at Princeton uh, was Anne Chang, whose book on uh, Josephine Baker and this question of skin and race and modernity um, is, you know, I cite Anne all over my book because, you know, in some ways, um, her work is just so important to the way that I approach these questions. Um, I also work with Diana Foss at Princeton, who's also working on this question of architecture and literature. Um, So I had a lot of good guides there. And then from there, I started to find other people in the field who were doing exactly the kind of work that I found so inspiring and so urgent. So you mentioned most of those people already, Diane Harris, Mabel Wilson, their work has been so key to me and through them kind of discovering all of these other kind of like-minded people who are interested in these question. So it, it's suddenly feeling like a less and less lonely place to be thinking um, about this work. Um, and, you know, part of the stakes for this project for me is, that, is um, both in terms of this question, uh, you know, this, this longstanding um, urgency that I feel um, to for architectural writers and theorists and historians to think about questions of race with more kind of consistency, but also the fact that But also pushing for this for race study for people interested in race studies um, and writing about race um, and its perception and materialization to think more about the built environment. So um, that's what I wanted this book to do is to kind of bridge both of those gaps and really say, like, we can't really think about architecture without race. We also really can't think about race without architecture. Um, And the skyscraper for me is really a way to get at that question or to get at that statement or that claim. Um, and again, there's just so many more people who are doing that work, um, that, uh, from a number of different, um, disciplinary homes that it's become, you know, a really lively and, uh, uh, great, um, field, I think, um, and increasingly so. Um, so that's the, I think that answers that question. Um. To answer your question about what's next, um, in some ways I kind of lay a roadmap for myself and some ways I'm trying to follow and some ways uh, departing from and the epilogue to the book, uh, which is called uh, From Skyscraper to Suburb. So in some ways it's trying to make this other claim about, uh, about the work that I've done in this book and the ways that the skyscraper kind of raised questions and put pressure on established protocols for thinking about defining perceiving and understanding oneself as seeing race having a racial experience that the skyscraper is kind of throwing all of these wrenches into um, standardized understandings about what race is and how you see it and how you feel it um, and trying to kind of scale out from the skyscraper think more broadly about um, a, a longer produce a longer history of white flight than we typically tell you know story about white flight is usually one that begins with the post the post-World War II moment in the US, the GI Bill, uh, with the subsidization of, of, of home ownership for white Americans primarily, who then kind of move out of the su- move out of inner cities into the kind of new mass suburbs that are being built um, uh, surrounding cities all over the US. And really trying to say that the story begins not so much with that post-war moment. We actually have to understand this earlier moment where the skyscraper is questioning is, is deemed by all of these writers um, to be kind of questioning the very foundation of of what race is and how you read it and whether race can endure. And then in some ways, the suburbs become the answer to that question. That if the problem for the white metropolitan is how am I as an individual supposed to make sense of all of these racial others in the city and be able to read them and taxonomize them um, and know who they are by who by what I can grasp of them, uh, Uh, procedure that's becoming more and more difficult in the verticalizing city, then in some ways the suburb solves a number of those problems. A, you know, it kind of, uh, the suburbs are, you know, more horizontally spread out. You don't have the scale. You don't have the same kind of density. You don't have the same kind of perceptual chaos because of the architectural uh, mooring of how mass suburbs were built. But also the people doing the vetting uh, for the mass, uh, for the, for, the, for um, mass home ownership in the mid-century was no longer the individual, it was the bankers, it was the realtors, it was the FHA, or it was these governmental organizations who were, who were vetting uh, lenders and vetting potential buyers and doing that work of racial classification. So the individual white suburbanite didn't have to do it. Um, so it kind of created a different burden of who has to have racial sight and who has to kind of maintain uh, racial acuity in terms of uh, um, uh, holding uh, holding up, uh, in terms of reifying certain kind of racial differences, so the second book is really taking up that story that I start to tease a little bit in that the brief epilogue at the end of the Black Skyscraper, and take up this question of mass home ownership in the twentieth century, and really think about the ways that mass home ownership produced a different kind of matrix of race and racial categorization than what. I was studying really in the turn of the 20th century. Um, And so, you know, at the turn of the, at the the period that I'm writing about the black skyscraper questions of uh, racial definition are in such chaos, right? Is race in the blood? Is it about what you look like? Is it about how you sound? Is it about how you present? Is it about who your great grandfather was? You have all these competing definitions of race that are uh, part of what allows the skyscraper to wreak such havoc on racial perception. Uh, By the time you get to this moment in the 20th century that I'm writing about in the second project, Race has changed. It's no longer the kind of question of blood and race is very different now. You have a professional appraisers who are going out and surveying surveying neighborhoods for racial types, right? So in this project, I'm thinking about how do our appraisers being trained to see race, right? What are they looking for when they go and appraise a a neighborhood? We have, you know, I think everyone's used to these kind of stock images of these redlining maps uh, produced by the HOLC. Um, But how did those maps get made? Like, I think those maps in some ways threaten to simplify what is an actually very complicated story of the hundreds of people needed to produce those maps who had to go block by block and produce some sort of racial reading of a residential area. So uh, I'm trying to figure out what protocols were they using to see and describe race and turn that into a financial reading. So if the first book is much more about architecture, the second book is much more about real estate and speculation and the financialization of racial difference through property and mass home ownership and trying to kind of trace how we get from, you know, this idea that there are, could be as many as 63 different races um, in the late 19th century to this kind of uh, understanding of blackness in particular as this kind of firm um, destroyer of property values, which is touted by realtors time and time again, even though there was empirical data that, that wasn't true, but nonetheless, how do we get, to this understanding of whiteness and blackness in the mid-century. And for me, the answer is property and mass home ownership. Um, So it's kind of trying to tell that story and ask what the humanities can contribute to that story most importantly. That story has so much been told by social scientists. Um, It's a a data-driven story, but it's a historical-driven story. So the other part of my question there is what can the humanities do to tell the story about the development of racial categories through home ownership and housing and for me, I'm looking at literature as kind of an archive, an archive for thinking about those changes um, to racial perception through mass home ownership, but also thinking about literature as kind of holding this counter archive of resistance to the mandate that one owns one o- one's own home, which is really produced starting in the 1920s in the US. And so, kind of thinking about this counter ownership imagination that emerges from things like the Harlem Rent Party. Um, from things like Richard Wright's interest in um, uh, 12 million black voices um, in reconstruction as this moment where African-Americans didn't want 30 acres in a mule that they wanted to move around the country, right? Rather than been tethered to property. I'm trying to find all these other ways where black and white writers uh, were thinking about Alternatives to property, home ownership, and the racial categories that those seem to require at mid century um, uh, to find other ways of thinking about dwelling that weren't tethered to the ownership form. So that's where I'm at. It's all like too big and really new right now, but um, it's proving pretty exciting and in some ways a natural extension of this, of the first book.
0: Yeah, it sounds exciting. I'm definitely looking forward to that coming out. Um, just a reminder the Black Skyscraper, Architecture and the Perception of Race um, is out now with John Hopkins University Press. And Asia, thanks so much for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for uh, for having me. This was really fun.
0: You've been listening to New Books in African-American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Support for the network is generously provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to newbooksnetwork.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or follow on Facebook and Twitter. Goodbye.